Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, July 1st. In today's news, President Trump sets foot in North Korea. The U.S. maximum pressure campaign on Iran is causing real hardship for people in Tehran. And Joe Biden gaffes again, this time on gay rights. But first, the big idea. Shortly after Joseph Mifsud's efforts to help connect a Trump advisor with the Kremlin were detailed in court filings, an Italian reporter tracked him down at a university in Rome, where he was serving as a visiting professor. Mifsud told La Repubblica that he never got any money from the Russians. His conscience was clear, he said, adding, quote, I am not a secret agent. Then he disappeared. The Maltese board academic has not surfaced publicly since that October 2017 interview, just days after Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about details of their interactions. Among them, Papadopoulos admitted to investigators an April 2016 meeting in which Mifsud alerted him that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. The conversation between Mifsud and Papadopoulos, eventually relayed by an Australian diplomat to U.S. government officials, was cited by Special Counsel Bob Mueller in his report as the event that set in motion the FBI probe into ties between the 2016 Trump campaign and the Kremlin. With Attorney General Bill Barr formally reviewing the counterintelligence investigation, the origins of the inquiry itself are now in the spotlight, and with them, the role of Mifsud. In his absence, a number of President Trump's allies and advisors have been floating a provocative theory that the Maltese professor was actually a Western intelligence plant. Seizing on the vacuum of information, they have promoted the idea that he was working for the FBI, the CIA, or maybe British or Italian intelligence, citing exaggerated and at times downright distorted details about his life. Among the people who have publicly peddled this conspiracy theory are the president's own lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, and Papadopoulos himself. Several Fox News personalities have also picked this up and run with it. The truth is that such a notion runs counter to the description of Mifsud in the Mueller report, which states that he, quote, had connections to Russia and maintained various Russian contacts, including a former employee of the Internet Research Agency, that Russian organization in St. Petersburg that carried out the social media disinformation campaign in 2016. Former FBI Director Jim Comey in May publicly described Mifsud bluntly as a, quote, Russian agent. Officials familiar with U.S. intelligence reports tell my Post colleagues Ross Helderman, Shane Harris, and Ellen Nakashima that Mifsud had been identified by intelligence agencies as a potential Russian agent years before he met Papadopoulos, an assessment that was drawn from extensive reporting collected over time. An examination of Mifsud's activities also shows that he began forging ties in Russia years earlier and that he was working to expand his network in that country around the same time he met Papadopoulos in 2016, including by trying to broker new academic deals with a powerful Russian state university. Mifsud did not respond to requests for comment made through Stefan Rowe, a Swiss lawyer who says he represents the professor. Rowe said suggestions that Mifsud had ties to Russian intelligence are, quote, defamatory. John Seifer, a former CIA officer who once ran the agency's Russia operations, calls the idea that Mifsud was somehow a CIA asset who set up Papadopoulos total nonsense. He noted that the agency is legally not allowed to target Americans. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Monday. Number one, 
Trump became the first sitting president to visit North Korea yesterday. He met with Kim Jong-un for 53 minutes of private talks and agreed to set up negotiating teams to discuss resuming nuclear negotiations. Yes, they agreed to negotiate about negotiating again. Trump and Kim walked up to the line dividing the two Koreas and shook hands. Kim then invited Trump to cross into North Korea. The two men strolled a few yards to a road on the North Korean side, stayed a few seconds, then crossed back. Trump said it was an honor to cross into North Korea. The two men then met with South Korean President Moon Jae-in before adjourning for bilateral talks in the inter-Korean House of Freedom that's just on the southern side of the border. Stephanie Grisham, the new White House press secretary, was bruised in an altercation with North Korean security officials while trying to help U.S. journalists gain access to the president's meeting with Kim. Despite that, Trump still found time to complain about media coverage of him while visiting the DMZ. Skeptics have accused Trump of elevating style over substance in his North Korea strategy, pointing out that a memorandum signed by the two leaders in Singapore last year contained no detailed roadmap and helped lead to the unsuccessful summit in Hanoi. U.S. intelligence agencies add that the North continues to develop its nuclear program in secret, even though it's maintained a testing ban on nuclear weapons. Trump countered that each meeting is part of a larger process that he promises eventually will yield results. Talking to reporters after Kim had departed yesterday, Trump said he invited the North Korean dictator to visit the White House. At some point, the president promised it will all happen. Number two, Iran's news media is filled with propaganda including upbeat economic reports. Tankers of oil are being delivered to China. The economy minister says tax collections are up 30%. Farm-raised shrimp production is expanded by 400%. But on the streets of Iran's cities, as the United States' maximum pressure sanctions take hold, the view is decidedly less sunny. Factories and companies are closing. Unemployment is surging. The value of the real, Iran's currency, has plummeted. The International Monetary Fund predicts a negative growth rate this year of minus 6%. It's not safe for Washington Post reporters to set foot in the country after our last Tehran bureau chief was illegally imprisoned by the regime for years. But three of my colleagues conducted interviews with a dozen Iranians from various walks of life, most of them contacted by telephone inside the country. Nearly all asked to be identified only by their first names, understandably, to avoid drawing government attention. Farnaz, a 39-year-old clothing designer, says she's concerned about people's mental states as jobs disappear and the future becomes more uncertain than ever. With sanctions-induced inflation and the skyrocketing cost of imported goods, she closed her boutique last year in Tehran. Other people are cutting back on red meat because the price is too high. To the extent Iranians can afford protein, most now get it from locally produced chicken, the price of which is merely doubled. Marhan, a 42-year-old architect, says, quote, Personally, I have lost hope for my life. Number three, Joe Biden faced a fourth day of attacks on Sunday from his rivals over past positions on racial issues, particularly from Kamala Harris, who had that heated exchange with him on Thursday night during the debate about busing. Cory Booker called out Biden on Meet the Press Sunday, saying he has failed at bringing people together on racial issues because he won't speak candidly about his past legislative work, such as his support for anti-busing legislation and the leadership role he played on the 1994 crime bill, which Booker says created the culture of mass incarceration. Harris landed 2020 endorsements from two more members of the Congressional Black Caucus on Sunday, Bobby Rush from Illinois and Frederica Wilson from Florida. Meanwhile, attendees at a Seattle fundraiser for Biden pushed back against the former vice president's claim yesterday that a homophobic remark toward a gay waiter would have gone unchallenged just five years ago. 
Now, Biden was trying to argue that America has made great strides with LGBTQ rights in recent years. As an example, he said that someone would have been let off the hook in 2014 if they had made fun of a gay waiter during a business meeting. But the audience in Seattle vocally challenged that claim. Indeed, people yelled back. One man said, not in Seattle. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, July 1st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.